welcome to the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host and TriDoc, Jeff Sankoff, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Thanks to everyone who took the time to send feedback and write a review after hearing the first episode. I think I have another great show for you today with an answer to an interesting listener-submitted health question, an interview with a phenomenally successful and popular triathlete, and another edition of Reels for Wheels with my friend and colleague Janetta Iwanaki, who will be along a little later with her suggestion for another great movie to watch while on the trainer. But first, let's get to our listener-submitted question. Living in Colorado, I am pretty much in the epicenter of the legalized marijuana movement in the United States. While this state wasn't the first to legalize medical marijuana, it was one of two, with the other being Washington State, to legalize its recreational use in 2012. So I suppose it isn't that big of a surprise that this episode's listener question relates to a derivative of the marijuana plant and its potential uses and benefits for the triathlete. Mark, who lives in Colorado, wrote to ask... Dear TriDoc, is there any evidence for the use of CBD oil for recreational or competitive athletes? And does it have any risks? Well, it turns out that this is a surprisingly difficult question to answer, and to answer with any degree of certainty. Let's first consider what CBD oil is. CBD is short for cannabidiol. CBD is one of more than 100 compounds called cannabinoids that are found in cannabis, the pot plant. Similar in structure to endocannabinoids, which the body naturally produces and might actually be responsible for runner's high, cannabinoids are most well-known for their feel-good effects. However, unlike tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, the compound that most people seek when using recreational marijuana, not all of cannabis's cannabinoids cause a psychoactive effect or high. CBD, in fact, actually counteracts these effects and may provide other physiologic effects, the most intriguing of which, especially for athletes, is to reduce inflammation. Now, the magnitude of CBD oil's anti-inflammatory effects are unknown, nor is it clear whether or not those effects bring with them some of the maladaptive effects to training that I discussed in the last episode with respect to NSAIDs. Still, those anti-inflammatory effects are potentially of interest. Now, if you Google CBD oil, you're going to come up with a veritable cornucopia of possible uses for this apparent wonder substance. In one brief search, I found, much to my surprise, that CBD can be used to treat pain, anxiety, insomnia, seizures, skin blemishes, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, depression, arthritis, dermatitis, and finally, muscle soreness from exertion. Well, who knew? Personally, I'm going to clear out my medicine cabinet and replace everything I have in there with a bottle of this snake oil. Uh, I should say miracle cure. Well, maybe not so fast. I'm sure that you won't be too shocked to learn that while there might be a lengthy list of claims about CBD oil and how well it works to fix, well, pretty much everything, the list of supporting research articles is not quite as impressive. In fact, I spent a fair amount of time yesterday searching the medical literature for anything related to CBD oil and its efficacy in treating any of the things that it's supposed to be able to treat, and I came up with a grand total of exactly zero articles. That's right. There have been no scientific studies ever done that show that CBD oil does anything whatsoever. Now, 
A big reason for this has to do with really where CBD oil is obtained from, the pot plant, and the fact that it's going to be extremely difficult to obtain any kind of federal or institutional research funding in order to do the kinds of studies that would need to be done in order to show whether or not CBD oil has any good effects. Now, the absence of studies supporting its use are matched with the absence of studies showing CBD oil doesn't do what it's purported to do. So there's really no evidence one way or the other. I will point out that CBD is specifically published in one very important place, and that is on the WADA banned substances list, specifically as an exclusion. That is to say, it is allowed. I think that it's safe to say that since WADA felt compelled to call out CBD specifically amongst cannabinoids as being excluded from the list of banned substances, then there must be a pretty reasonable number of athletes who are either using it in some way or who have at least inquired about its legality. So that brings us back to Mark's question. Does it work? And are there any risks? Well, to this point, I really can't tell you whether or not it works because there are no studies. But I will tell you that it's sure easy to find a lot of people out there who will tell you that it does all kinds of great things. Now, anecdotes are not scientific evidence, but they should not be discounted completely out of hand. And when there is such a large number of people who share the same positive experiences, then there may very well be something to what they are experiencing and saying. I just can't tell you that whether or not what they're experiencing is based on fact or if it's simply mass placebo effect, if you will. Still, if there's no harm, and we know that NSAIDs, for example, definitely can cause harm, and if CBD doesn't, then why not use CBD as an alternative? Unfortunately, the devil's in the details, and specifically, the details here have to do with what exactly you are getting when you get yourself a bottle of CBD oil, or whether or not oil is even the best form to be getting it in in the first place. For example, the so-called CBD experts currently disagree as to whether CBD in edibles, tinctures, oils, and salves are equally absorbed and used by the body. In other words, which form is best, and are all forms even equal? Unfortunately, a lack of science will lead to these kinds of unanswered questions. Worse, CBD products are notorious for advertising inaccurate levels of CBD within the individual products. And, according to a study in the Journal of the American Medical Association, which I'll reference in the show notes, one-fifth of the products that they tested contained THC, a substance that is most definitely on that WADA banned substance list, and in that case, not as an exclusion. So what are we left with? Well, if I was going to summarize the current state of affairs with respect to CBD, it's this. First, there's no evidence whatsoever to support the claims of its benefits. However, there is also no evidence suggesting that it doesn't work. Second, there's a growing population of adherents who strongly believe in the benefits of CBD. The possible benefit to athletes, for which there are a large number who support its use, is in its anti-inflammatory effects. We just don't know how strong those effects are and how much you would need to use to get them. The downside to CBD is the mystery of how best to use it and most concerning, what else is going to be contained in any product that you would happen to buy and use. So at this point, I most definitely cannot advise using CBD oil, mostly because of the risk of getting contaminated product and because of the possibility of having an adverse doping uh, test because of that. However, if you are one of the many people who are using CBD oil at this time, I wouldn't tell you to stop. 
I would, however, encourage you to be very diligent and do your homework. Check the company that's making your product. Be sure that you can trust what they say on their label in terms of how much CBD is actually in the bottle and that there's not going to be something in that bottle that they don't actually list. You do not want to get popped with some kind of adverse doping uh, result because you took something that you didn't know was there. Do you have a question that you'd like to hear me answer on the podcast? Well, send it my way. You can reach me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. I'd love to hear from you, and maybe you'll hear from me on the podcast. If you train and race long enough and hard enough, injuries are an inevitable part of your experience as an athlete, as my first guest can attest. Over the years, she has dealt with a torn plantar fascia, a stress fracture in her femur, and a torn labrum in her hip. And those are just the significant injuries that I know about. But despite that, or maybe in part because of that, she has had incredible success in the sport of triathlon. While I could spend the entire podcast just reading you her stellar resume, let me just give you a few selected highlights. She was the first overall female finisher at her very first triathlon, a modified half Ironman distance race, no less. She was the first overall finisher at the 2012 Timberman 70.3, 12th woman and second age group in her first ever Ironman at Lake Placid in 2014, 8th female and first age group at 2016 Ironman Louisville, 5th age group at 2017 70.3 Worlds in Chattanooga, and 6 weeks later, ninth in her age group in Kona. And in 2018, where she won her age group in every race that she completed in, she finished it off at Ironman Maryland as the second overall female as well. Add to this the almost 40,000 followers that she has on Instagram, and you have the one and only Ginny Cataldi, a woman who I am excited to call a friend and even more excited to welcome to the TriDoc podcast. Welcome, Ginny. Thank you. It's good to talk to you, Jeff. So, Ginny, you have compiled a remarkable list of accomplishments. Congratulations. Thank I know th- I know that hard work and dedication is the key to a lot of your success, but clearly there is something else within you that allows you to deal with the kinds of injuries that might derail some people's careers. How have you managed to keep coming back and regain the amazing form that you're able to display year in and year out? I think it's just that drive, that passion that keeps me coming back. And, um, you know, some of the injuries have put me on the sidelines for running, uh, mostly, uh, for a long time. I tore my plantar fascia, as you had mentioned in April and, um, didn't run again really until probably May, um, or June. And so I went into my first half Ironman of that season, knowing that I was going to be DNFing, but um, also with a new kind of challenge, knowing that I could swim and bike as hard as I possibly could just to see what happened. <laughs> mm. So I think it's just the, it's just that draw to the you know the sport and just how I feel when I'm out there participating. So looking back, is there anything you would have changed in your training or racing that might have mitigated some of the injuries? Um, I think it was just kind of a learning curve. I mean, I fell off of a horse initially and I think that kind of sealed my fate as far as, um, when the issues began, um, I learned that I had two pinched nerves and a herniated disc in my spine. And, um, while I was running one day, I 
went to take a step with my right foot and completely collapsed to the ground. Um, and it was like drop foot. And I went to the ER and they told me I needed to see a podiatrist and I went and saw him and he said, um, you know, this is your spine. This wasn't your foot. This is all nerve related. So it started there. And, um, I guess, you know, from, from learning that type of thing and the effects that it had on the rest of my body is affecting my hamstrings and my calves and my feet. And, um, so it was just kind of dealing with one thing at a time. And, um, as they popped up sort of, you know, regaining a sense of, okay, this is a result of this. Now we go back to all of these basics and, you know, physical therapy exercises. I know a lot of people don't like to do them or don't want to do them, but I feel like I learned the importance, um, especially with this last injury of, um, making sure that you are, you know, on top of your balance and your core. And, you know, we as triathletes are all straight lined in muscles. I mean, I could stand on a BOSU ball with my feet together and it wouldn't move, but the second you stagger them or put them wide apart, it's a completely different game. And, you know, I think a lot of times as athletes, it's surprising to realize that we do have these types of weaknesses. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. Uh, it, it is amazing how interconnected everything is. If you have a little issue with like your ankle and suddenly you adjust your gait and suddenly your hip on the other side is starting to bother you. And it's really maintaining that balance, as you say, is, is so integral and in not only preventing injuries, but, but, but getting back from an injury. Yes. So what advice do you have for the athlete who fears becoming injured from going too hard? Because, you know, I know you and uh, some of our friends and teammates, they, they, you guys just have an ability to persevere and get through pain. So what do you tell other athletes, you know, to, to, to be able to manage that kind of drive so that they don't push it too hard? Yeah, I think that's a hard thing because, you know, there is a lot of obsession when it comes to training for the distances we train for. And, uh, you know, one missed workout can, can make a huge difference in somebody's day. Um, you know, like just freaking out point of view, but I do think as hard as it is, it's really important to listen to your body. And, um, I saying that I, it's hard for me to even say how to listen to my body because, you know, I raced Ironman Maryland and finished. And, you know, then at the end, I realized I was really, really hurt. It wasn't until I finished that I had realized the consequences of what the race had done. So I, I don't necessarily have that like part in my brain that says you're hurting. You should probably stop. Um, obviously after the race, I took cues and I stopped everything. Um, and I, I think it's a hard, it's a hard thing to realize that you need to stop and you need to take a break and you're going to be okay. Um, I have, not really done anything significant since September 29th. But (laughs) let me tell you, when I'm allowed to start again, I know it's going to be hard. And I know it's going to take a lot to even come close to getting back to where I was, you know, for my first half Ironman that I'm registered for in June. But I feel that you just kind of need to roll with it. And, you know, it, it's important. I mean, I have a a friend who I talk to every day and she's like, well, this hurts and this hurts and this hurts. I'm like, can you just stop everything for like a couple of weeks? You'll be fine. Cause your base is there. You know, and it's like, 
I think it's just a matter of trying to convince yourself that everything is going to be okay. And it's hard. Yeah. And I, you know, what you were saying about coming back in June and not being able to regain that form, it's, it's also a matter of just managing your expectations when coming back. Absolutely. And, you know, for me, that's going to be a stepping stone to get me to where I ultimately want to go with my season next year. And it'll just give me some more experience on, on a race course. And I'm not going into it with expectations and, you know, actually I try not to go to any, into any race with expectations. It's so funny. Cause you know, when people are like, Oh, so-and-so are going to be there and so-and-so are going to be there. I'm like, I don't, I don't even look like I just go totally blind. And then of course you'll see somebody racking up next to you and you're like, Oh, Hey, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, it is one of those things like you can't control everything when you're on the, on the course and you never know what's going to happen. It's such a long day, but, um, just putting everything into perspective, I believe is. Yeah. Yeah. So for you, what's the hardest part about being injured and how do you cope? Uh, for me, the hardest part about being injured is, um, just the way I feel about myself in general. Um, I mean, I know that I'm not obese. I know that I'm not overweight, but the feeling of like the loss of endorphins and how I feel when I, view myself right now. It's, it's that intrinsic thing. Like I don't see somebody who makes me happy if that makes sense. And I am, I miss running so much. Um, it's not the same kind of missing running as it was when I, um, tore my plantar fascia and, um, fractured my cuboid. Remember I did that at the Olympic race when I met you? Yes. Yes. (laughs) So it's not that same kind. Cause that same kind, I was actually angry. I was like, why does this keep happening? And I'd see people running and I'd be like, grr, um, this, this kind is just, I, I'm, I'm, I miss just going out and just the joy of running. Um, so I think that's my biggest struggle right now is just, and, and being able to go outside now it's cold here, but, um, just being able to go outside and ride my bike and just to enjoy my off season. I think that's what I'm struggling with because this is when you don't need the data, you know, and this is when you can pop on your road bike and like, you can just go for a long ride and, um, come back. And it's just a different kind of feeling than when you're filling out your training peaks and you're like trying to meet all those expectations that are in that tiny little workout. Um, so it's, yeah, it's like just, the day to day it's holidays and like everybody's eating all this food and I'm like, but I'm not working out. And so it's that mental game. Yeah. So in the last episode, we spoke with uh, a coach and uh, I asked her how she, or what kinds of information she wants to hear from her athletes about day to day sort of, you know, physical status. And I'm curious as a high level athlete like yourself, how do you keep your coach in the loop about your physical status and what do you expect from him or her in keeping you healthy and in the process of getting you rehabbed? So I, um, before would write notes in my training peaks and, um, then I sent an email one time and I was like, well, you know, I was writing this stuff all week and it came to, 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 to realization that, you know, if you need me, you need to be in contact with me directly. So, um, you know, I appreciate the openness of my coach and the fact that he's willing to take a 911 text call or like the, okay, you can please get back to me within a day, but this is what's happening with me right now. So I, I, you know, appreciate that. And I get training peaks is kind of like a third tier method of communication, but 
Um, I think just realizing what your coach is willing to do and how far the communication is willing to go and, you know, to actually address that with them to find out what their preferred method is and, you know, what's, what's emergency versus not. Right. Right. And I got a a last question for you, which is going to be a little bit uh, on a different tack. And that is what advice do you have for women who are juggling family and careers while trying to excel in the sport or any sport for that matter? Yeah. I mean, so that's kind of the whole reason I started my Instagram in the very beginning. Um, it was to document my journey to Lake Placid in 2014 for my first Ironman. And I was divorced and I have two children and I'm working and I was like, you know what? I want to inspire other people. And I think the biggest question that people have is, you know, how do you find the time? And my biggest advice is if somebody wants to do something or you want to accomplish something, yes, you have to put in the time, but you need to make it. So you have to understand, is this like truly something that you want? And are you willing to make sacrifices on your schedule so that it does not affect your children so that it does not affect work? Um, and, and if you are, then, you know, put in for the longer stuff. I mean, there were weekends where when my kids were younger, I would set my alarm for three 30 in the morning so I could start my bike and be done by the time they were up and we'd have breakfast. And, you know, did I suffer from that? Absolutely. But it's just about how bad you want it. And if you want it, then go for it. That's great advice. And Ginny and I both mentioned her Instagram and I highly recommend it. It's incredibly inspirational and a lot of fun. Ginny, what is that Instagram handle? It's Ginny loves try 24. And I will uh, put that in the show notes as well. Jenny, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me, Jeff. And now it's time for Reels for Wheels, that part of the podcast when I am joined by my friend and colleague and fellow multiple Ironman finisher, Janetta Iwanaki, to discuss our picks for movies to watch while toiling away on the trainer in the pain cave. Welcome back, Janetta. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me back. On the last podcast, we talked about how both of us prefer watching movies while on the trainer over the likes of Zwift or Sufferfest videos, while acknowledging that this isn't for everyone. We also talked about the things that we look for in a good trainer movie, action sequences that are entertaining and well put together, especially if they have a comedic bent and great music, good stories without intense dialogue or complicated plot lines that require a lot of attention and thinking, and the concept of world building that I think you described very well. With all that in mind, your previous recommendation was John Wick, and mine was Kick-Ass. So what do you have for us this time? So one of my other favorite trainer movies is Mad Max Fury Road. And if there was ever a movie that was absolutely made to watch on a trainer, or I would actually add on a treadmill as well, uh, this is it. Um, So Mad Max Fury Road is essentially the story of uh, a new future um, after a a post-apocalyptic world um, where everybody um, in the movie is really constantly on the move. Um, driving through the desert uh, with battles ensuing along the way. And that sense of constant motion, that really kinetic nature of the movie, for me, is what makes it such a perfect trainer movie. I agree. I, I Also, for a movie that has surprisingly little dialogue, 
It yeah. has tremendous performances from its lead, Hardy. And really, uh, uh, you know, we talked about Charlize Theron in the last podcast when we talked about Atomic Blonde. But man, does she hit it out of the park in this movie. Absolutely. And I think that's another thing that makes it such a great trainer movie is that it's a movie that uh, nearly all of the story is told through visuals, um, along with, um, you know, those really amazing performances. And I think, you know, facial expressions, um, body language, and really just kind of everything that's happening in the action is what's the story here. So, you know, I mentioned before, not a lot of complicated dialogue that fits this movie to a T. Um, and then the other thing I mentioned last time was world building. And I think this is a perfect example where it's such an immersive experience and you really feel like you are on the move in the vehicles with these characters. Um, and it's so hard not to want to pedal faster when you're watching it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, talk about setting action sequences <laughs> to music. I mean, when right? when the, the, the guy is playing the guitar with the oh, whole yeah. setup like on the vehicle that's being Absolutely. immersed into the action, that, that really does do the, the trick. And they... They, you know, there there isn't a whole lot of dialogue, but there's just enough to set up what's going on. I mean, uh, it's interesting. Uh, a lot of the players in the movie were actually actors in the original Mad Max series uh, uh, back in the uh, '90s, and uh, the director, of course, uh, George Miller, who who to his credit has done things like Happy Feet, which I was surprised yeah. to find. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I, totally nuts. Uh, he brought back. Uh, uh, one of the main protagonists from the original Mad Max to play uh, the uber bad guy, who is not what you would expect to be a bad guy, given that he's old, somewhat decrepit on a on a respirator, <laughs> and yet goes on to make uh, really the penultimate sort of uh, early on in the film, setting up everything with uh, this great speech from the the clifftops. Once again, we send off my war rig to bring back gasoline from Castown and bullets from the bullet farm. Once again, I salute my Imperator Furiosa, and I salute my half-life war boys who will ride with me eternal on the highways of Valhalla. I am your redeemer. It is by my hand you will rise from the ashes of this world. So yeah, I agree. I I, I think this movie is a, a terrific one to watch. And the nice thing about it is because uh, the the story is easy to grasp, and it, you don't even have to like, you don't even have to embrace the story at any point just to enjoy no, the visuals. No. Uh, yeah. You can watch this one over and over again. I, I yeah, that's and a great I think choice. The other great, yeah, the other great thing is if you're doing intervals or something like that, that's really taking all of your attention, and you happen to sort of fo lose focus on what's happening in the movie for a bit, and then you tune back in. It's really easy to catch back up and kind of regain your grasp of where things are at. Um, the other thing that I really love about it too, is just the fact that, like I said, that kinetic nature of it, I find myself on my trainer sort of leaning from side to side as they're turning and like really sort of getting into, uh, feeling like I'm a part of that motion, which I really love. Yeah. And I, you know, it's interesting as I read about the, the film, 
a lot of the people who uh, came out in vociferous support of the movie talked a lot about how they liked it because of its supposed non-reliance on CGI. And the fact of the matter is, is that this movie uses more CGI than almost anything that came out in the same year. And the thing that distinguishes it from other movies is just that it's so seamlessly integrated, that CGI. And so the CGI... You know, when you watch a lot of these movies today, like, you know, Avengers or Iron Man or any of those other things, you know, CGI is is the story. Whereas in this movie, CGI is so beautifully integrated that uh, it, it is less the main focus and you could really just enjoy what's going on and not... Absolutely. It's really a tool for that storytelling rather than um, anything else. And I think the combination of that CGI with the practical effects and the um, really impressive stunt work is uh, really what makes it sort of sing. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, it's a great film. And, you know, just going back to Charlize Theron for just a second, I mean... (laughs) Uh, well, yeah, how could you not, right? Uh, she uh, <laughs> she she has had a really interesting career arc. Uh, the other actress that I think of when I think of uh, someone like her is Sandra Bullock, who, you know, started out as, you know, a very beautiful actress playing roles that you would think of for a very beautiful actress, and then suddenly started really expressing herself with her dramatic abilities. And... Man, I mean, you forget that Charlize Theron did things like Monster, like Monster, where she won her Oscar, and then uh, uh, has done really tremendous work doing all kinds of, uh, you know, features where you don't necessarily have to appreciate the fact that she remains a a beautiful, beautiful uh, woman and yet still can bring to the fore just incredible, incredible talent. And she really is, uh, if she's on the screen, she really is riveting no matter uh, what she's playing. And it's really been uh, tremendous to see how much she brings to every feature she's in. I really, really enjoy watching uh, her work. Absolutely. I totally agree. So for my uh, pick this uh, this uh, episode, I am going also with a little bit of a post-apocalyptic feel, and uh, I, I struggled a little bit with this one because uh, the protagonist in this feature is played by Tom Cruise, and Tom Cruise to me is one of those, uh, you know, last time we talked about Kick-Ass and that had Nick Cage, and Nick Cage is one of those actors who is, you know, love him or hate him, and Tom Cruise I feel very much is sort of the same, you know, like... Uh, He's in some great features like, uh, you know, say what you will about Mission Impossible movies. Some of them are just really, really fun to watch. Well, for this episode, my choice is uh, Edge of Tomorrow with the subtitle Live, Die, Repeat. And uh, I, you know, this came out in 2014 and uh, had uh, uh, with it uh, Emily Blunt was directed by Doug Lyman, who is uh, famous for doing the first of the Bourne Identity series. And um, he brings to this movie a very similar kind of feel, both uh, in its uh, pacing and also uh, just its look and feel. And... You know, Tom Cruise just uh, really, really does a great job starting in this feature as uh, a guy who is not at all the kind of protagonist he usually plays. In this, he's very much a coward who doesn't want to have any role in the assignment he's being given and then gets pulled into this very much sort of Groundhog Day loop where instead of having... Uh, 
the kind of Bill Murray experience that Bill Murray has in that <laughs> film. He is uh, pulled into a very different kind of experience, uh, reliving a day in which he is killed in all kinds of uh, very dis- uh, disturbing ways, uh, yeah. trying to uh, overcome an alien threat that is uh, taking over the world and uh, eventually enlists the aid of uh, an uber soldier played by Emily Blunt to try and uh, defeat this scourge. But early on in the film, he uh, realizes that he's in this loop and is trying to alert his uh, fellow soldiers to their uh, peril and tries to get them out of it by explaining what's been going on. Sergeant Farrell! Sergeant Farrell! Can I help you, My name is Major Bill Cage. U.S. Army Media Relations. I was on a bachelor party or a poker game. You have an order in your left pocket that says, I'm a deserter caught impersonating an officer. But what it doesn't say is that your, your name is Master Sergeant Farrell from Science Hill, Kentucky. And if you'll give me 30 seconds to explain how I know that, you may just save the lives of every soldier on this base. You have to listen to me. They know we're coming. They're waiting for us. I have been there. I've seen it. You're all doomed. You're doomed. You know, to me, this movie really is engaging. It, it does require a little bit of attention, but uh, the action is fast and furious. And uh, it really is, I, I, to me, was just a film I really, really enjoyed and have watched repeatedly over the years uh, since it's come out and have never failed to enjoy it and find something new each time I watch it. And have there been things that have surprised you on some of your rewatches that have really, you know, sort of pulled you back into the story and sort of brought you back to sort of feeling like you're watching it for that first time? Uh, Yeah. You know, it's funny. One of the things that and and this is one of the things where Doug Lyman, uh, Doug Lyman didn't only did the first of the films of The Bourne Identity. And one of the reasons that he uh, was taken off the series I I had read was because he didn't have a feel for the um, emotional component of uh, the character. So, for example, in that first of the Born Identity, where um, Born and uh, his German companion are um, trying to figure out what's going on and escape their uh, pursuers, he apparently Lyman didn't really have a great way to express the growing emotional connection between the two characters. And in this film, in Edge of Tomorrow. There's a very brief sequence where Cruz and Blunt's character are having a conversation and Cruz is really trying to, you know, learn a little bit more about Blunt's character and Blunt's character makes a very brief reference to the fact that when she went through the same time loop, she had to watch her love interest die 300 times and she didn't want to talk about that anymore. And... That goes completely unexplored, and you kind of are left like because you can see that as Cruz's character is watching Blunt's character die over and over again in his own time loop, he's becoming more and more invested in her, and uh, that emotional and that uh, that journey is completely unexplored. Uh, it, you know, it's left on the sort of side, and um, you kind of find yourself wondering how much of a an impact that would have and and whether or not that would, uh, you know, ever... Because at the end of the movie, he confronts her and she has no idea who he is, even though they've done all of these things together. And uh, he now would be in the unenviable situation of having to, you know, explain all of the experiences they've had together and she would have no benefit of any of that. And so, you know... It, 
that's completely unexplored and, and it leaves you kind of wondering, you know, where that could go or if that ever had any possibilities. And, you know, they've talked forever about a sequel to this movie. I don't know if it'll ever come to pass, but if it ever does, I'd be really interested to see if that got picked up on. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm guessing, too, this is another one of those movies with sort of this episodic action. Um, do you prefer to do intervals to it or is, do you have a different sort of uh, type of workout that you like? You know, it's really funny. I, I, I've, I've watched it several times to different kinds of workouts and it doesn't oh, seem – Yeah, it really doesn't matter because the, because the action is pretty fast-flowing and comes almost continuously, um, you can do pretty much anything to it. So uh, I've done interval workouts to it. I've done steady-state workouts to it. And uh, both of them have uh, gone quite well to this film. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a good film for pretty much any kind of workout that involves any kind of tempo or high-paced stuff. So it's a good one. Fantastic. Now I think I need to go rewatch it on my trainer again. <laughs> and the beauty is, is it's like Groundhog Day. So you could watch it over and over and it's, it's always the same. Yeah. <laughs> well, <Exactly>. thanks. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much for uh, joining me again today, Janetta. And uh, I look forward to having more conversations for more Reels for Wheels in the future. Absolutely. My pleasure. Happy trainer rides. (laughs) You too. Before I wrap up this episode of the podcast, I want to take a moment to give some well-deserved kudos to the folks at Giro Cycling. As all of you know, triathlon is not an inexpensive sport, and it's easy to break the bank by trying to eke out every second you can by getting all of the latest tech or fancy new apparel or whatever the latest and greatest may be. Now, whether or not you actually stand to benefit from these acquisitions is a whole other story. But I can't say that I've ever been terribly disappointed with some fancy new item, even if it didn't live up to the unrealistic expectations that I might have had for it. One thing that will always upset me, though, is if I spend money on something that is poorly made, or if a company won't stand behind their product when it doesn't perform as expected. And this is why I'm so happy to tell you about my recent experience with Jiro. A couple of years ago, I purchased the Giro Arrowhead helmet that, as well as being well-designed and very aerodynamic, is not, as some of you may know, inexpensive. A few weeks ago, while preparing for Ironman Indian Wells Lakinta 70.3, I was cleaning the visor for the helmet when it unexpectedly cracked. When I got home from the race, I contacted Giro to ask how I might acquire a new visor. They asked me how it broke, requested a photograph that I provided via email, and then, without asking when I bought the helmet, They sent me a brand new visor at no cost to me whatsoever. Now, I am a firm believer in the concept of brand loyalty. If you treat me right, you're going to earn my loyalty as a customer as long as I'm in the market for your products. And I can assure you that Jiro has earned that loyalty from me. And I would recommend them without hesitation to all of you as well. And that concludes this episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I want to thank my guests, Ginny Cataldi and Janetta Iwanaki, for being on the show, and you, my listeners, for taking the time to tune in. If you liked what you heard, I hope that you'll leave me a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, as this can really help get the word out and bring the podcast to new listeners. If you didn't like it, please let me know. I'm always looking for ways to make things better. You can reach me with comments or with your questions for me to answer on the podcast at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, and I hope that you will consider following me there. Links to those platforms, along with links to everything I discussed on today's episode, can be found in the show notes 
at www.tridocpodcast.podbean.com. The music heard at the beginning and end of the show is Radio by The Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many more like it can be found at www.reverbnation.com where I hope you will visit to give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back with another episode soon. Until then, I'm Jeff Sankoff. Train hard, train healthy.